I have some really easy questions to start with. Uh, what's your favorite animal? Oh boy, well, the zebra popped into my head, but that's not that's not it. Probably a Bengal tiger. <laughs> okay, you like the stripes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, would you mind giving me just a short little intro to who you are? Well, I'm Robert Beasley and I live in Hartville, Ohio. I've been retired for a number of years. I uh, began life in Nashville, Tennessee, but lived most of my life in San Diego, California. But I was in the uh, commercial real estate business. I uh, got out of the army in 1963 and went to um, went to work for a commercial real estate firm in San Diego. And then from there went into the development business, developed condominiums and um, uh, apartment buildings uh, throughout the country. I wanted to ask you when you became a Christian. I'm almost uh, 50 years as a as a Christian. Next August, um, it'll be my 50th year. So it was 1971. I lived in San Diego and um, had three daughters. I was raised in the church, but we never talked about it. And consequently, I fell away in college, as many do, uh, and really never came back. Uh, it you know just various various things happened. But it, in 1971, I was there was a a lot of talk about the the uh, environment in 1971, uh, 70, 71 on uh, for several years, and Time Magazine had a um, an issue that showed the and they had a number of these issues. They show the world and it's got a, some sort of a, a like a toothache, and he's got a, a hot water bottle on its head and so forth. And here's this: the Earth is in this in this uh, obviously sick. And in there, there was an article that that talked about this book that had been written about the Christians seeing the end of the world. And so I, I tried to find a Christian book. I said, well, that'd be interesting to read. And so I found the, finally found the bookstore, bought the book, came home and read it. And it was interesting, you know, but in the end of the book was the gospel that you could be saved just by putting your faith in Christ. And I thought Christianity was all about people climbing over one another, trying to get into heaven, doing good works. And I knew I, knew I was a sinner. This, I, there was no way that I would ever uh, acquire enough righteousness or whatever to get into heaven. So I wasn't even going to get into, into the game. Um, I was just going to, you know, hell with, in front of me, well, so be it, you know, kind of a guy. And when I heard it was a free gift, I said, that was the greatest deal I ever heard in my life. And so I gave my, gave my life to Christ. Uh, almost immediately, I was convicted of several sins in my life, one of which was I was stealing, I was stealing uh, a cable TV. I had rigged up the cable TV in our neighborhood. We lived in a new house and yeah. a new subdivision. And uh, so I got some splitters and I rigged it up so I, could, I was stealing the TV. And I'd been stealing it for about six months. So within a day, I don't remember exactly when it was, but it was within 24 hours. Wow. I wrote out a check and went down. I, I knew the people that were, that I was stealing from a friend because I knew the guy. <laughs> See, it's terrible. And uh, I, I took my checkbook and went down there and asked him how much do I owe him. And, and told him I'd become a Christian. I was convinced that I was doing the wrong thing. And then, so they, they were very kind and <laughs> uh, they gave me the number and I wrote out a check. So. And that was the beginning of my Christian life. And uh, 
but I had difficulty, you know, my wife and I didn't agree on it. It was, it was difficult to, to live at home. And, um, but I immediately took this trying to study God's word. Then from there on, I just learned more and ultimately went to seminary in, in 1994. So I was 50, 56 when I started, I think. Is that right? You know, I think that's right. <laughs> wow, that's really cool that you, I don't know how many people I've ever heard of go, starting seminary at that age. That's awesome. At that age, well, there, there are some of us that we always wanted to do it, but I never called to be a pastor or anything like that. I mean, there was just no question about that. Uh, but I, I, I enjoyed writing. And so in 1980, the late 1980s, I started a, a, a study of the Proverbs because I really enjoyed that book. And I read it through, you know, like a lot of people do every, every month. Uh, you read uh, one, one chapter a month and it's, there's 31 chapters. So it lends itself to that kind of thing. And I really enjoyed it. And so I started just studying different Proverbs. And I decided I would write down what I, what I learned. And so I started writing these and pretty soon I had, you know, 10, 15, 20 done. And so I continued to write and over a period of nine years, it took me from 88 to about 97, I think, when it was first published, I wrote this book. Uh, you know, you can, you can do things just by step by step by step, bit by bit, and ultimately you got something. And so this book I wrote, but it's, um, it's still going. Um, I, I had about 16,000 people download it uh, last month. Uh, no I gave way. it away it, on BookBub. BookBub is a company that sends books out to different books that are free or, or discounted. Uh, to really, the whole English-speaking world. So I have people reading this book in uh, India and Africa and all over the place. But anyway, that's kind of how I got started writing books. That's awesome. So you just attended seminary because you wanted to learn and keep writing? You know, I, I attended seminary because I really want not so much to, to do the writing because I wasn't, really wasn't sure that's what I wanted to do uh, with the rest of my life. But um, uh, I, I wanted to know um, the truth. You know, there's a lot of, of information that is being published by, not published, but just uh, given out by churches throughout America that's just not right it's just not it's just not accurate it it I think it it ultimately it, it I reached a crisis in my life in 1989 where I was I was having problems at home I was having problems uh, with my business I was having problems in the church because I was reading something in the Bible that I was hearing something different in in the, from the pulpit and so that really bothered me. It worried me. I, I, so I, I wanted to make sure I was right. And, and basically, it's, uh, it's the difference between Arminianism and Calvinism. And I had been taught the Arminian teaching that Christ died for everybody without exception. And where the Bible was teaching, no, Christ died for his elect. And it's a big question. It's really a division part point in the church, a big division point in the church. I mean, we get along. We're we're friends, but, um, yeah. you know, it's just, it's just, you want to know the truth. And that's what I wanted to do. I want to go to seminary and read some, read some books that, that would help me. So, so I had this question coming up a little bit later, so we can come back to it, but are okay. you a Calvinist? 
Oh, yes. Uh -huh. Okay. That... So this is great. I have more questions to come later, but we'll keep okay, the good. ball rolling for now. So right. what are the biggest theological subjects that have to be mastered to graduate from seminary? Well, at Westminster Seminary, and uh, we had to study both Hebrew and Greek. So uh, here I am, 55 years old, however old I was, trying to go in every morning and take a quiz in Hebrew or Greek. Uh, both, we were take, taking both classes at the same time, and all four years. So that was, that's something you need to master. Now, have I retained that? And have I? No, but but I know where to find the information and I know, I know pretty much what I'm talking about. I think you just have to have a clear understanding what the Bible teaches about God. You know, is God absolutely sovereign or is it just sovereign over some things? Well, if he's not sovereign over everything, he's not sovereign at all. <laughs> you, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so you, it needs to be the, the reformed faith. Calvinism teaches systematics. That is, it divides the study of God into different categories. God is love, but God is also wrath. God is sovereign, but God is also merciful. And God, God there's, I have a list of about 70 different attributes. There may be some overlap but that God, that God is, and they must all work together because he is sovereign in his love. He is sovereign in his wrath. He's sovereign. And he's wrathful in his in his love. He really is. All these things, it's sort of like a spider web that comes together. They all have to fit together. So, and that's what's important is, is in your in your study of the Bible, in your reading of the Bible, are you are you cheating God at all? Are you do you hold a a position on any subject that the Bible speaks of? And it speaks of everything, but do you hold any position that would negate any of the characteristics, any of God's characteristics, um, such as sovereignty. And that's what the, that's the big debate over grace. Is it sovereign uh, or is it ethereal? Is it, what's the word they use? Uh, well, I can't think of it, but uh, anyway. And what, what did Christ accomplish on the cross? You know, these are really important subjects and something that we disagree on. Gotcha. So when I was doing <clears throat> just a little bit of research on you, on your website, you said that you did a paraphrase of the Jewish wars because the latest translation was just a little bit old and hard to read, which I agree. I have a collection of all of Josephus's books just in one uh -huh. big one. And I had yeah. read most of the antiquities of the Jews and yeah. it is really hard to read. It is yeah. what it was really evident to me is the writing style was a lot like the Apostle Paul with really long run-on sentences that you can get lost in. Yeah. So, anywho, also... Let me say something about that. Yeah, this is this book. And by the way, it's free if you want to download it on Kindle. It's free today on Kindle because I'm having a, um, a promotion done on the Fussy Librarian. I don't know if you've heard of the Fussy Librarian. I haven't. But it's a, kind of a small book bub. But you don't have to go there. You just go if you go to um, go to uh, Bob Beasley and Josephus or whatever, it'll come up, and you can get a copy. Yeah. There. What is the official title? It's uh, the Jewish Wars, uh, Flavius Josephus, and he was, of course, an eyewitness, uh, as you know, to the, to the destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah. But he goes all the way back to the Maccabean revolts, 
and speaks mm-hmm. about that and brings you all the way through through the time of Herod's and and so forth and um, and of course the destruction of Jerusalem and then onto Masada. So he covers that entire period of history, which is fascinating. I mean, it, and yeah, it was really tough to read. And I started working on that probably 1997 or 98 before we came back to North Carolina. Yeah. And um, so I finished that a couple of years later and that's been out for a while. So of all of the ancient writings that you could pick up and try to update, why this one? Well, I'm, I've always been interested in history and particularly church history. Um, now that I've been a, become a Christian, um, I think that's extremely important we study that. And so this really is, is church history because it's Jesus in Matthew 24 stating that all these things will happen, that there will not, not be one stone left upon another. He was absolutely right. It was just completely torn down. The Wailing Wall that you see in, on the news uh, is just a foundation, yeah. foundation structure of what the temple was. So, yeah, the temple was totally destroyed. Anyway, it, it, it's um, a lot of people discount it, saying that nah, he was a traitor to the Jewish people and so forth. But no, the Lord, the Lord had him out there seeing these things so he could report it. Yeah, because so he, he's Jewish. But then at some point he saw the writing of the wall on the wall that things were not about to go down well for the Jews. So didn't he join the Romans? Well, he was captured. Oh, he was captured. Uh, yeah, he was captured in a battle. And then he was actually forced to do it. I'm, I'm sure that he didn't mind it. I mean, I think they treated him well. I mean, he talks about his captivity. I think they treated him well because he was such a high-ranking officer. Mm. But nevertheless, he was not there on his own because he desired to be with uh, them. I so, see. So, but it's amazing that they didn't just uh, shoot him. You know, or, well, they didn't shoot people back in those days, I guess. But... <laughs> Otherwise, cut off his head or something. Yeah. So, I love history books. I it is it takes so much mental energy that I don't read as much as I would like. But I picked up my copy just to do a little bit of a refresher, so I could ask you some questions. And number one, yeah. I just love actually holding the writings of somebody that lived for real. They were a real person two thousand yeah. years ago, and it is just so cool to have records of people like that. Number two, I was just shocked by how tame we are in the West. Like the human heart is still super evil. Nothing has changed, but the actual barbarity has definitely changed. So I saved this paragraph writing about Alexander Janus. I don't know how to say his last name. There's a lot of random Uh letters in there. And this was... (laughs) In the Maccabean Wars, I think. It was definitely before Jesus and he's doing a little prehistory. And just this one paragraph is disgusting. So he says, His rage was grown so extravagant that his barbarity proceeded to a degree of impiety, which is an understatement, (laughs) for when he had ordered 800 of his enemy to be hung upon crosses in the midst of the city, he had the throats of their wives and children cut before their eyes, and these execution he saw as he was drinking and lying down with his concubines. <laughs> it is so bad. It is so bad. We are so <laughs> tame here in the West. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, I was asked by, by the fussy librarian and <laughs> the fussy librarian says, is there any violence in this? 
And I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lots. Uh, but it's not gratuitous violence. It's violence that actually happened. I mean, it's in history. You yeah. Know? So, um, but yeah, there's, there's terrible violence. It's awful. But yeah. it's, I, I wrote it for so fifth graders. I mean, it's not, I'm, I'm hope a fifth grader could read it, whether or, not, whether or not their mom and dad would want them to read it. I know it's another question, but. Sure. So <laughs> it's similar to what I'm told anyway. I don't know the original languages, but I'm told that our English translations of the Bible even are pretty laid back as far as the original language goes. Well, they, I think they try to, uh, to do it justice. You know, I, I think um, uh, most of them anyway. Now you have in like the NIV, uh, the latest edition of the NIV really destroys the idea of the sun, you know, uh, of the, all of us, even you, we are sons of God. Uh, they try to they try to negate that difference between the between men and women. Because sons were those that inherited the land, and they inherited they were the, they were the ones that inherited everything. Mm -hmm. The oldest son, so daughters didn't inherit like that. They had they had other inheritances, but so that speaks of our inheritance uh, as as Christ's children, as Christ's people. Uh, we're sons of God, praise the Lord. But they, the new IV changed that, and we're children of God. You know that type of thing. But I think I think that the good translations, such as the ESV, I typically use. Uh, although I'm reading uh, the, the NIV now, I'm going back to an old Bible that I had since 1991 and reading that, and just looking at my notes and so forth. Uh, I, I like the ESV, but they can't capture the nuances of the. Hebrew or the Greek, particularly the Greek, because the Greek had so many nuances, um, uh, the different uh, tenses, the verb tenses that they, that the Greek language has. Um, it's, um, it's really wonderful, but you just can't, you can't capture it in one or two words. Yeah. So <laughs> I guess I can't put it off any longer. You yeah. are Calvinist. And yes. for me, I don't quite understand this because it sure seems like I have free will, you uh -huh. know? You do. So let's start with just the really okay. simple five-point tulip. Okay, well, T, total depravity, is probably the most important one. It's the one that most people say, yeah, I believe in total depravity, but then they don't really understand what it means. Gotcha. And I think that's the, that's the key to all of this. What does it mean to be dead in trespasses and sins, as uh, is, is stated in several places of Scripture, uh, including, of course, Ephesians 2.1. So what does it mean to be dead? Well, we're not dead. We're not dead physically. What, what did it mean when Adam w was told by God, uh, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die? And uh, wh what did that mean? Because he didn't die. He lived for 900 years plus. So, so that's the question. And what the Calvinists would say, what that, what that means is that we are dead to the Holy Spirit. We're dead to God. We are alienated from God. We, are, we, are, um, uh, we were kicked out of the garden. Um, we have no further relationship with God. In fact, our relationship is one of enmity. We, we don't care about God anymore. We don't give him the credit. We don't give him the glory. We we in fact suppress the truth as Romans 1 25 says that we're suppress the truth uh, in our uh, sinfulness in the hardness of our hearts. So our hearts were hardened. And if you, if you look at people 
you know, today, just next door neighbors and people like that, you say, well, wait a second, those, those people aren't dead spiritually. Uh, they're, they're nice people, um, you know, or they're not, they're not uh, bad people, evil people. No, it doesn't mean that we're as evil as we could be. But it does mean that we have no relationship with a living God. In fact, we, we hate the living God. And so in order for something to happen, in order for something to get, get back to God, God has to initiate it. God has to initiate it. And this he did. He did. Did it with uh, Noah. Uh, did it with Abraham, where God takes this moon worshiper and takes him into a, uh, a land that he never really gains for himself. And he promises all the nations in the world will, uh, the people will, will be uncountable, like the sand of the sea, that you will they'll be your progeny, your offspring. And of course, the offspring were ultimately the Jews, but he was, God was talking about a spiritual offspring. And the only way for this to happen is for God to make it happen, for God to bring new life to dead people. And people will say, well, wait, wait, people, we have free will. And yeah, we have free will, but we have free will in order to choose what we want. And we don't want God. And the Bible is pretty clear about that, that we don't want God. God took the initiative in Moses and bringing the, bringing the um, uh, Israelites out of the land of Egypt and so forth. And he put them in the land where they were told to kill everybody, kill everybody. He didn't want them to associate with anybody. He had tried to give, bring new life to these people. And some he did bring new life, ultimately, ultimate new life. But he did give them a, a land in which to live. And he governed that land and so forth. Well, you know the whole story behind that. But so the idea is that if, if God didn't try to, if God, if God did not save anybody, nobody would be saved. Nobody would be saved. And so when Christ comes to the earth, he, there are people who are, have been chosen by the Father to be saved. And we come to God with great, with, with great pleasure. Uh, and indeed, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to be born again. So that's basically total depravity. If God didn't save us, nobody would be saved. Uh, people aren't as bad as they could be, mainly because God is suppressing evil in the world. Uh, he's, so he's holding it down by his spirit, by his angels, by whatever. Just like uh, Christ uh, suppressing evil in his day by throwing out demons and that type of thing. This is what God is doing even today. And so if God took his hands off, which I, I think will happen during the, the great tribulation at the end of the age, we would self-destruct in a, in a matter of a short, short time. So we, we walk by faith in what God says in his word about us and not by what we see in other people. And you stands for unconditional election. Right. And what, what that means is God from all eternity chose us, chose those to be saved from the foundation of the world. He had this in his plan, in his mind before anything was created, or at least the earth was created. I'm not sure exactly when he chose us, but it was before the foundation of this world. And uh, he chose us. Think of, think of the implications of this. He knew you would be born and live in Idaho. He knew I would be born back in 1938 and live in different places. <laughs> but he knew, he knew what, I would, what I would be. He knew where I would be. He knew that I would be married to a woman who was 
continues to be an unbeliever, that he would allow me to get married and have three children before I was saved. I've always often asked, Lord, why didn't you save me, you know, before that? Well, he, I, I think I know the answer. And I think he, he would say, you probably would, you would have become a pastor and you'd have been terribly unhappy because <laughs> I would have been a terrible pastor. I love to preach, but I, I'm not much at, uh, at loving people. <laughs> I do love them, but it's, it's just not my thing. But anyway, so unconditional election means that there were no conditions. He did not look down the corridor of time and, and see that I would be a good guy. And so here's a, here's a guy, this guy's a good guy, I'll save him. No, no, no. He knew I was a sinner. He knew was, I was rotten. And, and yet he, he chose me. Uh, was it because of my family? Yeah, I think my dad was a believer, my mom. Um, I was raised in a Christian home. All these things work together, but the, but that doesn't really tell you why he chose me and not some person in Africa or just my next door neighbor, you know, didn't who's, who's not a, a believer and maybe will be. So it's unconditional is that you, you there were no prior conditions. Uh, God knew who I would be, a sinner, and he chose me. Now, did God choose me just sort of uh, any, meeny, miny, mo, like we used to say as kids, you know, and um, I'll choose uh, this person for no reason? No, that's not, that, that's not true either. We just don't know why he chose us, and we never will know. So that's you, ooh, you, you. You in the tulip. Okay, um, <laughs> and then L, limited atonement. Well, this is where most people say, um, you know, I, I just don't, I, I'm a four-point Calvinist. Well, they're not a four-point Calvinist. There's just no such thing. You have to be a five-point Calvinist or you're not a Calvinist at all. Okay, so L, limited atonement, is a, is a misnomer. It's not a very good way to state it. Everybody limits the atonement. Every, every theology, a Christian theology, limits the atonement. Um, liberal, of course, people don't believe in any kind of satisfaction or atoning blood for our sins at all. They just think it was a, uh, that Christ died and it was a, um, um, it was a wonderful example for us, you know, that we are, should be self-sacrificing and we should help people and so forth. Uh, they don't see the uh, uh, blood atoning work at all. Arminians limit the atonement by what Christ accomplished on the cross. They will say, well, Christ, in fact, I, I was an Arminian for 18 years, and I never understood this. They never tell you. But they believe, at least what I understand they believe, uh, that what Christ did on the cross was he, he eliminated original sin for everyone. So you start with a clean, clean slate, everyone in the world without exception, Hitler, Mussolini, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Joe Park, Bob Beasley, um, everybody. He, he took away original sin. Then it's up to us to come to know Christ by uh, believing in him. So they don't, they don't believe that, I would, that Bob Beasley and Abigail were absolutely saved on the day that Christ shed his blood for us. We'd have to be applied later by the Holy Spirit when we were walking on this earth. So the Arminians limit the atonement in terms of its efficacy, in terms of what it accomplished. So the, the Calvinist limits the atonement by the number of people that it was for. 
It was the design, the design of the atonement. So Christ, God designed the atonement to actually save a certain number of people, vast numbers of people. And it could have, the efficacy of Christ's blood it could have covered a million worlds of people. It could have covered everybody. It could have, he could have, God could have saved everyone who ever lived, but he didn't. And we know that to be a fact that he did not save everybody. Mm -hmm. um, because the word of God specifically denies that over and over. So um, um, Calvinists would believe that God limited the atonement to the elect, to those for whom Christ actually came to save. So that's limited atonement. But everybody limits the atonement. Okay. I have not heard that about Arminianism. That's such a hard word to say, <laughs> that it gets rid of the original sin. I had not heard it either. And I was an Arminian for 18 years. Nobody ever told me that. Huh. Now, some of them probably don't believe that. <clears throat> I just can't speak for them. But that's what I heard from an, Arm in an Arminian theology book. Sure. All right. So I, we have... Oh, irresistible grace. When God, the hounds of heaven want you, <laughs> they're going to get you. You cannot resist it. And you don't want to resist it. It's what happens in the new birth is that God comes in. Ezekiel talks about this. Jeremiah talks about this. Isaiah talks about it. That God's give, he's, God says, I'm going to give them a new heart. I'm going to put a, a heart of flesh in place of their heart of stone. And that's what, that's what happens in the new birth. And so this new heart, this heart of flesh, immediately sees the error of its ways and, and jumps at the chance to be saved, jumps at the chance to love God. To, and so that's uh, irresistible grace, is that it's, uh, it's irresistible, and praise the Lord it is. Otherwise, God would not be sovereign. Uh, let's get through P, perseverance of the saints, and then I have a few more questions. Okay, so the perseverance of the saints is we don't hold on to God, we don't hold on to Christ. Christ holds on to us. And once you're saved, you're going to be saved for eternity. We have eternal life as soon as we're saved, as soon as we're born, born again and given the faith that God gives us as, a, uh, as indicative that we've been born again. Faith is really the testimony to ourselves that we've been born again, that we're, we're God's. And this, this says that God, once saved, uh, always saved. People say, well, no, I had a friend that he, he was saved, and, and then he, he left the church. Well, the, the parable of soils, you know, the seed is yeah. cast on the, yeah, that, that says it. That, it, it those, guys, those guys were never saved. Now, they might come back to know the Lord. Um, God may work with them in that way. Uh, I, I went forward as a um, child. Uh, in a Baptist church in Nashville, Tennessee, and received Christ. But it never took in my life. Uh, in fact, I, I denied the faith in college. But that didn't mean that God was not inter still interested in me. And I wasn't resisting the Holy Spirit. God just hadn't really given me a new birth yet. It was an emotional decision, wanted to please my parents. I, I'm not sure what, but <laughs> I really felt emotionally involved at the time. But anyway. But anyway, so those are the five, five points. Is there a difference between God's pre-knowledge of who would believe versus predestination? 
Yes. Some Arminians will tell you that what predestination is, is that God looks down the the corridor of time. Because see, God is omniscient as well, Mm -hmm. is sovereign. He's omnipresent. He's all these things. And in his omniscience, God saw that I would believe, and therefore he chose me. But that, see, what that does is that fixes the future anyway. Uh, and And that gives me some credit for being saved. And I deserve absolutely no credit for being saved. The, 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 the presupposition of free will, is uh, this free will that can choose the evil as well as the good, is so important to people that they'll just reject anything about, about God's sovereignty or whatever in order to maintain it. That's my personal thought. God knew from all eternity. God sees everything just as like it's laid out in front of him. And he, he saw... He he or preordained that I would live, and he and he foreordained, forechose me, uh, that I would ultimately be saved. Had nothing to do with me. So this is why it's unconditional. But when you see that 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 conditional election, based on my ultimate decision, that God has nothing to do with except for a wooing kind of a thing, you know, that gives me some credit and it takes it takes away from god's sovereignty and god is absolutely sovereign he, he, he if he if he's not then he's not god and this is so wonderful it not only gives you an assurance of salvation but to know god's sovereign hand is upon you gives me an assurance that nothing nothing can ultimately bad can ever happen to me so i can be at peace about the elections say or the or the war that we might be in or whatever uh, whatever the condition I'm in, uh, I know that God will never leave me or forsake me because he's chosen me. Does Calvinism allow someone to reject God? Or is it that God has rejected them? Okay, here's the deal. What, are, what is God doing? What are his interests? What, what is he accomplishing by all the stuff that's going on in the world today and, and since the beginning of history? He's calling out a people of his own, just like he called out the Jews from Egypt and into the promised land. That's a metaphor. The promised land is a metaphor for the new heavens and the new earth, ultimately. So God is calling out this people. And in order to do that, he knows that there are going to be people who are saved and people, pardon me, people who are not saved living together at the same time. Okay, so you have all of this milieu of all these different people. It's creating an environment whereby God is calling out his people from them. He doesn't reject the unsaved. He allows them to just go on their own path, just as if he'd never chosen anyone. Calvinism is not a situation where God says, well, I'm going to reject that guy. and I'm going to save this guy. No, he's rejected everybody. He, we were children of wrath before we were saved. We were born in wrath that God was going to do that. And so what he does is he, he, he chooses us. He picks us out. He picks his own people out of this world. The other people were already rejected because they were sinners. So it's not a, it's not a double predestination. It's, it's, just, it's everybody's a child of wrath. 
and God's going to save some. And praise the Lord, he does, because he doesn't have to save anybody. So why, why doesn't God save everybody? You'd have to ask him. <laughs> I okay. don't know. Okay. I don't know. He doesn't have to. He's not required to. God, everything God does is good. So to, to accuse God of something, um, you know, against his character by, because he didn't save Adolf Hitler, I don't know. I don't know why he allows this kind of things to go on. It, but it's it all for a good purpose. Evil is for a good purpose, ultimately. And that is he, he brings out of this evil world people he wants to save. Why? We don't know. We, we're not told. We, we can't speculate. So maybe you can clear this up for me. I am understanding the idea of Calvinism and predestination as the idea that everything that happens in the world was also planned that right is this correct god ordains whatsoever comes to pass that's uh that's the westminster confession of faith he ordains it he doesn't he doesn't cause it that doesn't eliminate secondary causes he's not responsible for my sin for instance he's not responsible for for the evil in the world but he he uses evil for good purposes I'm not sure if I quite understand this. So he's not, he's, how is he not responsible if he is responsible for everything else? He's not, he's not responsible. Here's the deal. Okay. Uh, when Adam and Eve, let's take it because it gets simple there. There's only two people. Okay. Sure. And, and Eve, Eve decides to take the apple and she eats it. And she gives it to Adam and he, he rejects his responsibility and he eats it. Is and God gave them command. It was a simple one: don't eat of that tree over there. You can everything else is yours to eat, but don't eat of that tree. And uh, they were tempted. Satan rejects God's word. He says, "Oh, did God didn't really say that?" Or he says, uh, "You know, Lord, uh, God is really a hard taskmaster. He, you know." Uh, you could be free and if you ate that fruit and, you know, and be, be happy and so forth. But anyway, um, uh, so they eat of it. Uh, God's not responsible for what they did. He, did he know in advance they're going to do it? Absolutely. He knows all things. So why didn't he make, why didn't he make us so we, we wouldn't do that? Well, because that's the way he made us. He made us, he gave us a choice to choose either good or evil. He did the same thing with the, the angels, but he didn't send a savior for the angels. So from all eternity, Christ is going to come and save his people from their sins. But was he was was uh, God responsible for Judas uh, sinning and and turning Christ into the into the powers? No, he's not responsible at all. It was Judas's decision. Yet God knew he was going to do it. These are things we. It's difficult to get our arms around because we're just not. We don't have that kind of cap, cap, capability. But it's something that the Bible teaches, and that's what we must believe it. See, this is where I think a lot of people go astray by saying, "Well, I don't understand it, so it can't be true." Sure. <laughs> but you know, there's a lot of things we can't understand. How does God create the world? I have no idea. Okay. 
I think I just have maybe one or two more questions and then we can wrap okay. this up. So why should you preach the gospel? Because Christ commanded it. And that's the way people are saved. <laughs> um, when, when, a, when a Calvinist goes into the mission field, he knows that there are people out there that God wants him to speak to because, because, because he's called him to go to that particular area. Uh, it's like Paul when he's when God told him to uh, go to Philippi. Was it Philippi or was I have many, I have many um, uh, people in that city. Uh, that's the that's the idea. All right. Yeah. But if there is an elect, and there always was an elect, uh -huh. why why should you preach the gospel? Well, because God told us still to. <laughs> Christ says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And we're to, we're to raise them up to be disciples, not just converts. That's one of the big problems with Christianity today. We don't have a lot of disciples. We have a lot of converts. Yeah, he tells us to. The reason is, and, you know, uh, Paul uh, is told by, by God's spirit. Um, he says, uh, where was it, in Philippi? He says, uh, go into that, go into that uh, town because I have a lot of people there. Uh, he and so this we know that there are people out there. Uh, God is not waiting for somebody to choose choose him down here. He's not hoping that somebody will will believe. Because really, if he didn't do it, nobody would believe. Nobody would be saved. Uh, because we all hate God and don't want anything to do with him. So. My understanding of free will is that definitely you you still have to have, God has to reach you first, but is the converse of this that God is also not choosing people and just some people are just destined for hell no matter what? Right, because we would all be destined for hell if God didn't save some. Yeah. It's, not that, it's not that God chooses some to, be, to go to hell. Everybody's going to hell. And he chooses everybody to go to hell. Um, we, we were, when, before we were saved, uh, Paul says we were children of wrath. We, we were under the wrath of God. And yet he chooses, chooses some to be saved. Why he does that? For what reason? I have no, it's not something that he looked down the corridor of time and he saw that I was, Bob Beasley was going to choose him someday. And so he chooses me. No, no, it's not that at all. Uh, it's that he, he somehow chose me, chose you from all eternity uh, to be his children. And that, isn't that his right to do? This is what Paul argues in Romans uh, 9 through 11, that it's, it's really God who, who is in charge. And I, it's a wonderful thing that God chose me from all eternity. Hmm. And it's, it's, I am absolutely no question about it in my mind that I'm going to be with him for eternity. It's just, there's no doubt. So I have had a pretty difficult time being a Christian. I have found it very difficult to be faithful and to continue to obey God. And in many ways, I, well, obviously I fail over and over, but what has been very difficult for me to understand in Calvinism is that 
either I'm saved or I'm not. So why should I struggle? <laughs> well, we still have a sin nature. That doesn't go away. And so we struggle against sin. Uh, just the idea that we're struggling against sin is indicative that we're saved. I, I struggle. I don't, you know, I don't struggle as much as I used to, but I still struggle and I still sin. And I've been a Christian for 50 years. Mm -hmm. so. Uh, so one last question about this, I think. Maybe I'll think of more. Um, why, if we are saved and God ordained that we are saved, why is it necessary that we continue to obey him? Why is it necessary? Uh, <laughs> well, that's a, that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, number one, because we want to. Uh, because now our whole lives are changed. They're turned around upside down and they're, they're focused on the Lord Jesus Christ and, and our eternity with him. So we do really, at the, at the foundation of our lives right now, we, we have this desire. He's put it there. He's, uh, Isaiah speaks of it. I'm going to write the law in their hearts, and, and so does Jeremiah. And, and, and I think Ezekiel speaks of it, too, that I'm going to put my law in their hearts, and so they will want to obey me. And um, I can't re recall exactly how those verses go, but that's basically the idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change their hearts. I'm going to circumcise their hearts. And that's what he does in the new birth. Uh, it's not, we don't give ourselves new birth because the reason they chose that, uh, that uh, metaphor in, in John 3, uh, I'm sure the Holy Spirit chose it because it's something we can't do for ourselves. It has to be done mm -hmm. from outside of us. But anyway, um, God gives us this want to. Uh, the, the old Baptist preacher says, God puts a want to in your heart to obey him. Um, and so that's what we want to do. Do we do it perfectly? No, not at all. And you've discovered that you don't do it perfectly. Uh, in fact, we, we, uh, we mess up all the time, but God forgives us. We, we're, we, we can go to him and confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise the Lord. Mm -hmm. Definitely. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so I think Calvinism is, is a matter of, of um, not cheating God out of who he is. And that so everything has to line up, has to make sense. I, I was accused. I, I had a friend I used to meet with, an atheist. And he asked me, Beasley says, you're, you're a smart guy. I says, I can't believe you believe all this stuff. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to answer him because that was the stupidest thing that anybody could say. It, it is the most wonderful, the most intellectual, the most incredibly warming thing to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And, it, and it, intellectually, it is. I know there's a lot of Christians who, who don't think it's intellectually satisfying. It is, but because they... They don't believe it. They don't believe the real deep things uh, that, that we're, we really are dead in trespasses and sins. And we need, we need somebody to wake us up. And that's what God does in the new birth. Anyway. <laughs> so one more, I did think of one more. Are you telling me that God predestined me 
to back my truck into my garage door last week. <laughs> totally your fault. But uh, yeah. I can't blame yeah, God I've for that one. If he didn't, no, no, you can't blame God. You did it. Um, <laughs> but, um, but God knew you were going to do it. Sure. He knows everything. And, and that's the beauty of the Reformed faith is that um, you don't, you don't, you don't blame God for these things. No, it's our fault. We, 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 you chose to get into the truck and so forth. God knew you were going to do it, and He actually ordained it. But that doesn't mean to ordain something doesn't mean to cause it. Otherwise, if we thought, thought... hello, I lost you. Bob, are you there? Hi. Hi, there you are. So you some, were, some reason we got shut off. Yeah, so you were just saying just because God ordained it doesn't mean he caused it. That's right. Big difference. Big difference. A lot of people think that but because God ordained it, then he's responsible for it. It's not true. Not true. No, he, he knows what's going to happen, and he allows it or he, he causes it to happen. Sometimes, he does cause things to happen, no question about it. But God is good. He's absolute good, absolutely good. And he would never cause evil so or bad things. He yeah. just allows it to go on. We don't understand it. There's no way we understand it. We just That's one of the things we just receive. Oh, darn it. So. You cut out there for just a second, but thankfully we didn't get totally cut off. Alrighty. So, um, is there any, I did want really quick want to reiterate, cause I don't think we did a great job to reiterate why it would be important to read the writings of Josephus and the Jewish wars. And it's because it's showing that Jesus's prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem happened. Totally. Did we lose you again? Oh, there you go. Yeah, you just you just froze. Okay. So, did you hear any any of my question? Yeah. Why is it important we read Josephus? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's extremely interesting <laughs> that that uh, uh, that. You know, when we read the book of Acts, all this stuff is going on in the book of Acts. I mean, there's a whole area, there's a whole era of Acts, that 40 years between when Christ, uh, well, it's not quite 40, probably 37 years, when Christ rose from the dead and, and ascended into heaven, and, and, um, and when Paul's, or their ministry stopped, when all of them were, you know, Peter was, had been executed and so forth, was this whole thing is taking place during that period of time. And there was just trouble. It was just very great trouble. 
the, the word many uh, of the Jewish people had had risen up. Are you there? I yeah. am. Yep. Okay, there you. I was so, just being still. I thought you'd frozen again. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so anyway, you get background of the of the uh, of the time of the of the apostles, uh, all the great struggles that were going on. There was just a lot of warfare. A lot of different cities were being burned, and um, so you get a lot of background for the New Testament. And that's so important, I think. Um, um, but I, I just it's, history is always fascinating to me, and this is this is history that that Christ himself had spoke of, spoken of. And, and I think that's, that elevates it to um, an even higher ranking, <laughs> yeah. whatever that means. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll just take that little clip and move it back to when we were talking about Josephus. But I was just thinking, I don't think I did a very good job of that. So glad we got that cleared up. Now, my last final four questions, these are a little bit silly, and you can go into as much depth as you feel necessary per each one or you could answer it in one word it's up to you um of the two tv shows the office or parks and recreation which one is your favorite <laughs> well you know I've, I've seen about one or two uh of either one yeah and i think parks and recreation would have to i i spent too much time in an office and so many of those things hit hit real home real to me you know, or hit Hit, uh, hit home to me. Yeah. So, all right, is Genesis pre-Abraham legend or history? Absolute history. Yeah. Uh, do you think that there are aliens? Oh well, wait. I'm going to go back to that. Okay. Uh, state the pre pre-Abrahamic Genesis is history. Yes, I think it's history. I, I believe the Word of God. Now, does it describe Oh, there you went. Gosh dang it. Does it tell us everything about creation and so forth? No, it doesn't. But but I believe God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's history. That's history. And the rest of it, well, I don't think God intended it to be a perfectly clear history of what uh, what actually took place. Does that mean I, I'm, I'm not a believer in the new earth? No, I'm a new earth guy. So... Okay. Uh, that's where I am. Yeah. Awesome. Um, do you believe there are aliens? No. They're they're uh, they're angels. They're cherubim. They're they're heavenly beings. But I don't believe there's there's another race of of people like us, flesh and blood people. You know, I think we're. I could be surprised. I mean, I don't. You know, we're not told. Right. Uh, we're, we're not told. So. But I don't, I don't, I don't think there is. <laughs> and here's my last one. Who or what inspires you to be your best self? Uh-oh. It froze up again. Okay. Can you hear me now? Hello? Tell me when you can hear me. Check, check. It's a good thing we're almost done. Hello?
My goodness. It's a good thing we're hey. almost done. This is <laughs> becoming quite difficult. All well, right. I have no idea you're doing this. I just, I'm amazed. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Our internet, mo for the most part, works really well. I don't know what's going on right now. Anywho, so just my final question is, okay. who or what inspires you to be your best self? Oh, Christ. Yeah. And, uh, and, and uh, this is what Christ came to do, to restore the image of God in us. And of course, we're going to love him with all of our hearts um, and all of our minds and all of our strength. We don't do it for five minutes, but, but we, and we fall off, but that's who we want to be like. We want to be like Jesus. And so we read about him and we talk about him and we learn about him and we, and uh, because that's, 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 that's the whole, that's life. <laughs> Jesus is life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, truth and the light. Well, this has been a good time. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. It's been a joy for me. I just love to talk about things like this. So. Awesome. Yeah. Great. And I've been keeping up with your daughter, and she told me I needed to say hi. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell her. You, you reminded me so much of her, uh, the way you talk, everything about her. You look just like her. That's awesome. All right. Well, well I guess you've left me again. Yep. Have a good... See you later. See ya. Thank you.